0: coming towards the end of our series about Abraham. And um, we finally, last week, y'all, we finally, finally arrived. We've been waiting for Isaac to be born. Weeks and weeks and weeks of waiting for the promise. And finally, last week, Jonathan got to share with us the promise. Isaac is born, and it was something to celebrate. And, um, As we turn to chapter 22, it is a very different kind of story. So Abraham and Sarah have waited. They're over a hundred years old. Abraham is, they finally have their son. Everything is going well. It says that some time passes. We don't know, it's at least probably 10 years, maybe 15, maybe 20, we don't actually know. And God comes to Abraham and he asks Abraham to sacrifice his son to display his devotion to God. And and as a parent, it's it's changed how I read this story, right? It is one of the most gut-wrenching stories in the Bible. And as I think about this story, I can't help but think about Good Friday, 2021. So March of 2022, Ella, our daughter, was born. She's 19 months of chaos and fury, but in March of 2021, Lauren was 12 weeks pregnant and had a miscarriage. And there's a, there's a lot of details in that story that I could share, but just to to you know catch you up a little bit, it was um, we had been married for seven years, finally decided now's when we want to get pregnant. We had got pregnant. We'd already had one um, healthy doctor visit, and then went in for our 12 week appointment, and there was no heartbeat. And it was, I mean, it just it just gutted us. And I remember it could not have been darker and raining harder on that day. I think it was March 16th. And um, fast forward a couple weeks to Good Friday, and our church always did Good Friday. They weren't services; they were more like almost like guided meditations. You would come and you would watch some videos or read some read some things that were supposed to help you reflect on the cross. And I just cannot forget sitting in that church auditorium, grieving this loss, right? And, and again, it's not like somebody's up singing. It's not like somebody up is talking. It is just like you by yourself watching video, reading some things. And it's just honestly the first time I had just a lot of silence to process with God what had happened. And I remember being so frustrated like, God, why? Like, we, we, we went through, our first four years of ministry were terrible, okay? Like, that's a different story for a different day, but they were really, really difficult. And we finally moved back towards home and we landed at a good church and things were starting to go, go well. And then we lose our, our first child. And I remember sitting there so frustrated saying, God, why, why would you take this child from us? And sitting in that auditorium, I will never forget when it clicked for me that I would have never chosen to give up any of my children. But I was experiencing the pain and grief from the loss of a child that we did not know. And it was in that room that it clicked for me God, who had known his son since the beginning of time. I don't even know what that means but who had known his son longer than any person that we've ever known and had a depth of a relationship with him further than you and I can ever experience that he willingly sent his son to come to earth and die for us. And something, something changed in me that day because I realized I would never choose this. And yet God did. And what happens is that when we see God that way, things change. When we see God clearly, it changes how we worship. It changes how we follow him. It changed things, and it changed things for me that day. And my hope and prayer is that as we look at this story, which is ultimately pointing to the cross, that the same thing would be true for us this morning. That we see a God who knows even deeper the pain we've experienced, and who wants to draw us into a loving relationship with him. So, with that in mind, let's go ahead and dive into this story. Genesis chapter 22, it's going to be on the screen for us. It says this sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. All right, so here's what's important for us to, as a reader, we get to know that this is a test. Okay, it kind of of absorbs a little bit of the shock for what is about to be said. Abraham does not know this is a test. It says, Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, Here I am. Take your son your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. Right, like this is, this is gut-wrenching. And if I'm honest, I've sat with this this week and there's about a thousand questions that I wanna ask. And if I'm honest, I spent some trying time to take them all down and then realized like, we, we don't have time. I would love to. We don't have time. But there's one, there's one main question. It's why? God, why would you do this? They've waited 100 years. You performed a miracle to let a 90-year-old woman get pregnant. Isaac's probably lived 13, 15, I don't know how many years. And now, why? Right? Like, I don't know about you, but I, can, I can't even imagine what Abraham is thinking. And it's important for us to recognize the why is that God is testing Abraham. He wants to see how fully devoted Abraham is. And here's the thing. Ultimately, God already knows the answer. When God allows us to experience a test, it is less about him learning something about us and more about us learning something about us. And God is not casual. He is not flippant. He is purposeful. God tests us individually with specific purposes in mind. And that purpose is our growth. So the first thing we need to know is that tests are about growth. Tests are about growth. And And one of the things that tests do is that tests grow our faith. So one of the reasons that we're tested is that that test actually grows our faith, right? The only way to increase our faith is to exercise our faith, Right, we know this physically, right? Like if we want to increase our physical ability, what do we do? We exercise. Right? And the same thing is true with our faith. The only way we increase it is to exercise it. Right? When we are stretched, it causes us to grow. Right? So I was talking to a friend of mine this week who leads a, a nonprofit, and he had one of his donors call him, said, Hey, um, like his this, this couple was, I think they're late 70s, early 80s, they're retired and they called and they said, hey, um, our investments, um, are, like our portfolio did not do very well this year. And so my friend was like, I was like bracing for the like, so we're only going to give half of what we normally give. Like he was like, I was fully prepared, like that's what was going to come out of their mouths. And he said, what shocked me is they said, hey, in a step of faith, we're actually going to give double what we normally give. And I was like, they're crazy. Can I have their phone number? right? But like tests, they grow our faith, right? There are times that when we're in them, we actually are stretched and we actually rise where we haven't before. It's a way for God to grow our faith, but tests also show us how our faith needs to grow, right? So if Abraham would have failed his test, It wouldn't have been that there was a gap in God's understanding of Abraham's faith. What would have been revealed is Abraham seeing the gap for his faith. So, like, I think about my response after we had the miscarriage, and this was true for me. Again, like, there's probably maybe a day I'll share some of our first ministry experience. Um, It's really difficult. We have some friends in town who are like with us in that, and so it's really funny they're here this week because I'm talking about this. But well, we had spent four really difficult years, you know, nine hours from home. We moved back. Again, we're starting to get in a healthy place. And if I'm honest with you, the doubts and fears that I had was that like, this was gonna be it. That Lauren was gonna say, hey, like, I don't know. I don't know that I still believe God is good. Like those were the fears and doubts that I had as we were walking through the pain and loss. And it was revealing to me that there were gaps in my faith. There were things that I ultimately thought I could be in control of that I could not. And it was revealing to me about how my faith needed to grow. So tests grow our faith. They show us how our faith needs to grow. But lastly, they also show us how our faith has grown. one One of the ways that we see how God has matured us in our faith is on the other side of a test. And so I remember seeing this and, and feeling this for Lauren after the miscarriage, right? Like she grieved the loss, she experienced real pain and yet she clung to Jesus as her hope through it all. And it revealed what God had been doing in her for a long time, that she stayed steady and secure in her relationship with God. When if I'm honest, it would have been really easy to doubt his goodness, his kindness, and his plan to her, right? And so tests are for our growth, right? And like I said, we know this, right? Like we're coming into turkey trot season, okay? And my hope is that if you've signed up for one, which if you're gonna do Spartanburg, let me know, I'm on the fence, okay? I could be persuaded. Um, Is that if you sign up for a turkey trot, my hope is that you train a little bit, okay? Um, If not, you'll be really miserable probably, or you'll walk and you'll be fine, but it'll take too long. But if when, you sign, when you sign up for a race, the hope is that you train, right? And that as you train, you are exercising, you do some runs to increase your speed, you do some runs to increase your endurance, and then you show up for the day of the race and it all gets revealed. How much, how much have I increased my aerobic ability? How much have I not? If it's for me, it's usually my diet wasn't good enough. And so I get there carrying more weight than I should and I pay the price right? But tests are like that, right? They, they stretch us, they show us how we need to grow or how we've grown. And so here's the thing, we might not like the reality that God does test us, but he does it and he has a reason and a purpose for us. And so that is why Abraham is tested. And I think it's crazy how well he passes this test, because as I read this story, this would not be how I respond. Look at what it says in verse three. The next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey and took two of his servants with him along with his son, Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire, for a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. Pause right there. Go back to that verse. One of the things I was reading this week shows that he, this is like a human moment for him. That he's, Though he's being obedient to God, he, he's discombobulated. He saddles his donkey, is ready to go, and then says, oh, snap, I gotta cut the wood for the fire. Right, it like shows us like he's obeying, but like like he, he is a real person who's like, oh, oh, okay. I just think it was just kind of like a, a really kind of funny thing that happens in the text there. All right, verse four, it says this. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little bit further we will worship there, and then we will come right back. Y'all, as I read this, I'm so challenged and convicted. Right, first of all, the next day, he gets up early and goes. Like, if it's me, I'm, I'm dragging my feet. God, did you really, did you, no, like, I don't think I heard you right. I think there was something. You want me to do what? No, he gets up the next day, and he gets up early. He doesn't even, like, sleep in at all. He gets up, and he immediately obeys God. And then the thing that just gets me even beyond that is his faith in God, that God is able to do honestly what Abraham doesn't know has ever been done, right? He believes, he says it, he says, we will come right back. And before we think that Abraham is like, I don't know, like deceiving the two servants, look at what Hebrews 11 says about Abraham in this moment. It says, it was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. Abraham, who had received God's promises, was ready to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, even though God had told him, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. And in a sense, Abraham did receive his son back from the dead. Like it's, I I don't know, like he, there's no, like at this point, God hasn't done this before. But what Abraham is thinking is, I don't know how, I don't know where, I don't know why, but the God who has done these things for me in the past is able to do this. Like he somehow extrapolates what God has done to what he will do in a way that if I'm honest, I struggle to know how he would have the faith to do that. Right? Like, he's basically saying, I have seen God do a miracle in the fact that my 90-year-old wife, who was barren and now beyond the years of childbirth, if she can give birth to a son, then I guess anything is possible. Right? It is is fascinating. It is is convicting and challenging for me. And it's because if I'm Abraham, I want to know the details, right? Right, God? Like, if you want me to do this, at least tell me, right? Like, Are we going to go through that? Are you going to raise him from the dead? Like, are we going to get, are you just trying to see if I'm willing, right? Like all these questions, all these explanations that you and I want, right? And Abraham moves, even though he doesn't have any of that. And so Abraham's faith and obedience is convicting to us. But here's the question. Is this conviction supposed to move us to a particular similar action? So as we read this story, Is this a story that is first and foremost about challenging us to sacrifice for God? Is the point of this story that you and I should evaluate ourselves and determine what we should sacrifice for God? Let me let you off the hook. It's not. But this is not a passage in the Bible that has a go and do likewise application. All right, so you can... Right? You can take a deep breath. It's going to be okay. Now, here's what I think this passage does do I think this passage does make us ask ourselves hey, is there anything that I'm clinging too tightly to? Is there anything that if God asked me to let go of it, I would have a hard time saying yes to? I do think that is a question we can ask as we read, but let's be clear God is not saying that about your kids, okay? Parents, Your kids are your responsibility. Specifically, you are the primary spiritual trainers for them. You are the primary spiritual trainer for your kids. Okay? And he's not saying that, unfortunately for some of us, about our spouses. I'm clinging too tightly here. Going to have to let this one go. No. No. Okay? No. But I do think it makes us ask, hey, is there anything that is ultimately taking more of my time and attention to where my relationship with God or my relationship with my family is being negatively impacted? Like I know the way that I'm bent, it's always work, right? Is work getting the best of me and my family getting the leftovers? Or am I so busy that I'm actually unable to spend time with God consistently? Right, Is being physically healthy and exercising and eating right getting so much of your our attention that we can't be spiritually healthy? Right, I think those are some of the questions that this passage would cause us to ask. But the point of this passage is not ultimately us sacrificing for God. This story points us to the sacrifice of God. All right, so as you read this story, as you're reading the Old Testament and you're like, this is like kind of reminiscent like of Jesus. The answer is yes, right? It's like when you're driving down the road and there's like 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 I went by uh, Sugar and Spice the other night, like at like well, was like five o'clock, but it's dark now, and they have the old school like little arrow that's like coming this way, like the lights are coming up, like pointing. Like that's what this passage is doing to the cross. It's like, hey, I know you're flying by, I know you're headed in this direction. This this is what you should be focused on, right? This passage is pointing us to Jesus. It's ultimately supposed to have us point to the cross and go, oh my goodness, this is not about my sacrifice for God, this is about the sacrifice of God, right? Because ultimately, right, Abraham does not go through with the sacrificing of Isaac, but everything that we're afraid that Abraham is going to do to Isaac, Jesus actually takes on the cross. So, Thinking about this as a pointer to the cross, let's read the rest of this story. Verse 6, it says, So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders. Sound like anything familiar? While he himself carried the fire and the knife, as the two of them walked on together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, we have the fire and the wood, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? I mean, can, like I can't, I cannot imagine, right? And here's the thing. You want to know why there's no emotions from Abraham given to us? Is that we don't need the Bible to help us imagine what Abraham's thinking or feeling in this moment. Like we're real clear. Like this is just agonizing to think about because Isaac would have watched Abraham sacrifice animals his whole life. So he knows what's happening and he knows that they are missing one very key Ingredient. And as they're getting closer and closer, he's looking around and he's like, There's no animal here. Probably Like you feel it. Like there's there's tension, there's anxiety. And here's the thing: Isaac does not know what he's getting himself into, but Jesus did. It's one of the interesting distinctions in this story. And so I love, I love how Abraham responds. Verse 8, it says, God will provide a sheep. For the burnt offering, my son, Abraham answered. And they both walked on together. When they arrived at the place where God had told him to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on top of the altar, on top of the wood. All right, so like, let's, think, let's take a moment and just think about the like logistics here. Abraham is 100 plus years old. Isaac is probably a teenager, right? The fact that they go on a three-day journey without mom, he's able to carry a a heavy load of wood. So Isaac consents to what's happening. He would have been stronger than Abraham and he would have been quicker than Abraham. If he wanted to get away, if he wanted to resist, he could have and he would have been successful, right? Like I'm telling you y'all, like, Ella, as a 18-month-old, can evade a lot of people. Lauren keeps saying, I keep getting slower, Lauren's pregnant, and Ella keeps getting faster, and I can hardly keep up when we go to the park. If that's true for an 18-month-old and a 30-year-old, how much more true is this for a 13-year-old and a 100-plus? I mean, if he's 13, Abraham's 113. And so just like Jesus Willingly goes to the cross, knowing what's going to come, willingly submitting, surrendering himself to his loving father, Isaac does the same thing. And it says, And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. At that moment, the angel of the Lord called down to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, Here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way, for now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Can, can we just acknowledge it for Abraham? It's like, hey, God, could you, like, just a little bit earlier, right? I mean, come on, like, before I tie him up, because that's an awkward conversation. Hey, it's you. I don't really know the answers. I don't have them, but It's you. Not before then, but right? there's some things relationally, like when it happens, you can't ever go back. This feels like one of those moments. Before then, nope. God, what about before I pick up the knife? Like he's there, I mean, I can see it. Do I have to, at least like before the last second? No, the very last, it says at that moment. And here's, here's what we take away from this is that God's timing is different than our timing, but God's timing is always perfect. God is never late. God is never late. And, and here's, here's, what, here's what we can all acknowledge. Some of us like to be early. God, could you just be early? Be great, you know? God's timing is always perfect. And I think it's a reminder to those of us who are struggling to wait on God's timing, right? Because I, as I think about people in this room and friends and family that I've had conversations with, there's so many of us, who we are waiting on God to do something that only he can do, right? So there, there are people that I know they have a desire either to be healed from something or to have a healing process of something, and they are waiting on God to work. They are waiting on God to heal. There's a lingering sickness or ailment. I think about people I talked, talk, someone I was talking to who they have a desire to be married, right? They're, they're approaching 30, and we had a conversation the other day where it was like, hey, like, I know that I could get married, but I would rather wait on who God wants me to bring than to rush in and be tethered to somebody for, to forever, right? But it's hard, right? It's hard to wait. And so I don't know what you're waiting on God for. I don't know where you are in the journey. I don't know if it feels like there's still time or if it feels like it's the last possible second, but what I can assure you is God's timing is always perfect. God's timing and God's provision are always perfect. And so at the right time, at the right time, he tells them to stop and then look at how God provides. Verse 13, it says, Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. So notice this, God provides in a really natural way, right? Animal doesn't like the sin from the sky, no like manna or quail from heaven. Nope, just a ram. And it's great, right? It has to be a ram. because I think ewes, ew, yeah, female lambs, I think is a ewe. I think I remember that from something a long time They don't have horns, right? Gets caught in a bush, so natural, right? God just pro, just provides in this way. And notice, he doesn't. there's not like a whole flock of sheep coming by. It is one ram at the right time in the right place. And so he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of or as a substitute for his son. Abraham named that place Yahweh Yireh or Jehovah Jirah, which means the Lord will provide. To this day, people still use that name as a proverb on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. I right, leave this verse up for a second. There's a couple things I want to comment on. The first is that I love the name that Abraham gives for God because this is not a name that he gives to God that just memorializes a past event. The name he gives for God is not the Lord provided or the Lord did provide. It is the Lord will provide. It is still present and active tense, which means that God is still providing for his people. And so God has, is not done providing. He is our provider. Right? This means we can trust God to provide what we need. But what I want to make sure we don't miss, I think, is like the main point is the phrase in place of as a substitute for. That is is the pinnacle of this passage that a ram is a substitute for his son. What Isaac needed most was a substitute. And what this shows us is that God provides what we need most. Because just like Isaac needed a substitute, just like he needed a ram to be in his place, you and I, ultimately what we need most is the substitute of Jesus on the cross for us. We needed Jesus in place of what we deserved. And what's crazy, we can't prove all this stuff definitively, but there's enough breadcrumbs in the Bible that actually show us that this is probably the exact same place where the temple gets built thousands of years later, right? It said the land of Moriah, 2 Chronicles 3.1 says that Solomon built his temple on Mount Moriah, right? So with at least the same area, it might be that same mountain, that same mount, check this, where God is going to basically say, this is how people relate to me in this season, right? People would bring animals that they would sacrifice to make their relationship with God right. But that was not the, ful- the fulfillment of God's plan, no, because that's the, the same place where Jesus walked, right? The, the steps into the temple are still there. Jesus walked on them. I've been there. You can sit there. It's crazy to think that Jesus was there. And then a couple hundred yards away from that hill on a different hill called Golgotha, Calvary, the place of the skull on that hill, the ultimate lamb of God was sacrificed. Maybe maybe that's actually where this happens, but don't miss this. What, What this story is pointing to is that one day, God is going to send the lamb and he is going to die in place of humanity. the same place where Abraham goes and is willing, but where God does not ask him to, God does the unthinkable. God does the unfathomable. You could argue that he does the unreasonable from our standpoint by sending his son to live and then die for us. And so this story points us, think about this. Everything we think is going to happen that doesn't, God does. God sends his son to be betrayed, beaten, mocked, spit upon, whipped, nailed to a cross, left for dead. And while on the cross, he experiences so much relational separation from God. He says, my father, why have you forsaken me? And he does that for you. And he does that for me. And so my hope and prayer is that we see clearly what God did through his son, Jesus, that it would move us because as we think about the things that you and I, if we're honest, we would be unwilling to give up if God asked us to, that God gave up everything for us. That something would shift in your heart like it did for me on Good Friday a couple years ago. Guys, sacrifice is supposed to move us. Sacrifice is contagious. And it reminds me of, it, it, it might feel like a, a silly example, but when Lauren was pregnant for Ella, I remember Belly had, you know, mm, this robust. She was great, the child is what I like to say. And um, there was one day she was unloading the dishwasher and it was really clear that... Um, it was difficult for her to bend over to like get to the, the bottom rack where like the dishes were. And I'm like across the room. I think I was just like sitting on the couch, like doing nothing of value. And I'm watching all this happen and like seeing her sacrifice moved me to action. I'm like watching her sacrificing for our family, right? Sacrificing her comfort, my goodness, right? Sacrificing her body, literally, right? Sacrificing a lot, and it moved me to say, hey, can you go sit down? Can I do the dishes? Here's the thing. I didn't have to do the dishes. I wasn't trying to earn anything from her in that moment. It was just watching her sacrifice for our family moved me to action, right? Sacrifice should move us, and the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf should move us. The gospel should do this for us. And so I'm I'm curious, how is God How is the sacrifice of God, how is the gospel moving you today?